Hello, and welcome to the Skellicast, uh, the forensic anthropology, true crime, and forensic science podcast that strives to basically apply the realities of forensic science to cases both famous and un- largely unknown. I'm your host, Stephen. I am a former deputy coroner uh, and forensic scientist and researcher. Um, I am also the executive director for Calibri Forensics, which is a nonprofit volunteer group which uh, we conduct uh, search and recovery missions for missing aircraft and their occupants in hopes of finding and returning missing persons to their loved ones. Um, for our first episode, uh, it's difficult to choose where to start, and so one has to really think about how do you want to make a first impression? Do you go for a big splash, salacious, gory details, horror, or, or do you go for a more nuanced, subtle approach to a well-known case that has largely been misrepresented uh, both in the general media as well as in the true crime podcasting community. Uh, In this case, we've decided to cover uh, the supposed disappearance of the Sodder children. Uh, For those of you who are not familiar, uh, this was a case that happened uh, Christmas Eve to the very early hours of Christmas morning, 1945, in West Virginia. The case involves the family of George and Jenny Sodder, who were Italian immigrants and by all accounts, were pretty much well-regarded in their community prior to the fire. Um, They had 10 children, uh, ranging in age from 2 to the mid-20s, one of whom, the eldest, was away uh, in the military. This was just after the end of World War II. We were still uh, maintaining occupation forces in both Germany and Japan. Uh, So small towns particularly uh, were deprived of a lot of their young men uh, at this time, which plays into aspects of this case that we'll get into in a little bit. This fire broke out at roughly 1.30 in the morning, and there, out of the nine children, five of them did not make it out of the house. Four did. Um, The four who survived were Marion, uh, Sylvia, John, who was actually 23, so really referring to him as a child may be a misnomer. He was, a, he, he was the child of George and Jenny, but he was an adult. And George Jr., who was 16. Uh, the five who died were Sylvia, age 2, Martha, age 12, Jenny, age 8, uh, Louis, age 9, and Maurice, age 14. So this being Christmas Eve, the family had allowed the children to stay up later than they normally would. Marion, who worked at basically uh, kind of a dime store, um, had brought home gifts for some of the other children and had given them to them. And there was this gift exchange before bed. Uh, George and the elder boys were already in bed um, by the time everyone else went to bed. Um, They had worked on the farm uh, and in the company business. So they were... You know, be exhausted like you would be after a long day's a long day at work. 
the adult, the rest of the family turned in. Marion went to sleep in the living room, according to most reports. Um, at around 30 minutes past midnight, 0030 um, time, if you want to use the military time, uh, ODARC 30 being the more common terminology, there was a phone call that was uh, answered by Jenny, the mother. Uh, it was described as a woman's voice. She could hear laughter, and she asked for someone who Jenny did not know. There was a report of music or a – sounds like a party in the background and the clinking of glasses and everything like that. And some people have made this into a indication that there was some sort of a test to see if the family was home. Um, the police later tracked down who made the phone call. It was a wrong number uh, made by a woman who was most likely intoxicated. Um, and it had absolutely nothing to do with this case. It's, it, it's a red herring. Um, so, you know, Jenny concludes this call pretty quickly, goes back to bed, falls back asleep. Now, like a half an hour later, she hears what she referred to as a, um, a thump and a rolling sound um, on the roof. And the family in the ensuing years made a big deal out of this, uh, trying to say that it was the result of an impact from a thrown incendiary device, like a Molotov cocktail or something like that. Just as likely, this being winter time in, you know, West Virginia, uh, may have just been ice sliding off the roof, um, a piece of ice falling off of an overhanging eave onto the roof, knocking more stuff loose and tumbling down. It's a common enough thing. I mean, there's actually a term for this in German, Doc Levine, roof avalanche. Um, so, you know, it may be a hindsight bias of saying, well, this, you know, we believe this happened, so every little noise means everything. It's We see this really commonly in the UFO community, the paranormal community, the Bigfoot believers community. They, there's lots of things where, you know, very mundane things take on a significance that is probably not entirely grounded in anything approaching fact. Um, one of the cautions that one has to take in a forensic investigation. So at around 1.30 in the morning, uh, 0.130, uh, Mrs. Sauter was awakened uh, by the smell of smoke. And I'm going to take a moment here. Um, I was trained as a volunteer firefighter years ago, and uh, this is slightly off topic, but it's something that's near and dear to my heart. And important given the circumstances the fact that we're talking about the death of children in a house fire house fire deaths are largely preventable and even though mrs Sauter in this case woke up to the smell of smoke most people do not wake up to the smell of smoke in fact having your door open and having smoke enter the room is more likely to lead to your death than it is to wake you up and allow you to get out of the house by the time the smoke reaches you the fire may already be too far advanced this is the time even if it means stopping this podcast temporarily, go check your smoke detectors. Make sure your batteries are charged. Make sure the batteries are replaced. Make sure you have a smoke detector in each of your bedrooms, in the hallways, in the kitchen, places where your utility room, places where fires are likely to start. If you take nothing else away from this podcast, I ask that you take that away. If this podcast saves one person, it's all worth it. You may disagree with my conclusions that are going to come later in this about this case. Uh, 
But I hope that you don't disagree with my statements here that prevention and safety and preventing more deaths in fires is vital and overrides any difference of opinion on what happened or what did not happen in this case. Okay, so back to the case at hand. And sorry for the uh, little bit of an off-topic uh, uh, discussion there. So Jenny Sauter, in realizing the house is on fire, starts to rouse everyone. Her husband, uh, uh, at least five of her children, um, the ones who escaped, or four of her children, excuse me, um, John, the eldest, uh, the eldest son who was present, um, 23 years old. And Jenny, upon reaching downstairs, in her original statements to the police, which are probably the most credible in any investigation, what you tell somebody initially for an eyewitness statement is usually the closest thing to the truth because you have had less time to process it or get information in that may skew intentionally or otherwise your assessment of what you saw, heard, tasted, smelled, felt, whatever. She stated that the fire originated in George's office around the fuse box and telephone lines, which is not uncommon. Electrical fires have been a problem since electricity became an issue. Or been there. The family fled outside, at least the, the survivors did. And George Sauter, to his credit, and like any father who saw his children in peril, went to great lengths, every length imaginable for a devastated, terrified man to get his children out of this burning building. He busted out a window, tried to climb up the building and found uh, he cut his arm very seriously um, how exactly seriously he cut it varies but it's almost universally described as a very serious wound um, the where this gets this little bit gets kind of mixed up with oh there was something malicious going on here is that there's a report that a ladder was found out of its normal place up against the house that was it was found in a ditch several yards away which I mean honestly I don't know what to make of that um, I don't think that points to anything because I mean if you're gonna move a ladder and get rid of it to prevent somebody from getting access to a building um, why not just break the rungs of the ladder uh, why not remove it completely um, why just dump it a little further away where it was easy to find um, and it seemingly was easy to find in hindsight the solders attempted to start their trucks and the trucks failed to start which has been interpreted by some to mean that the trucks were tampered with um, and quite frankly you have to remember these aren't you know modern fuel injected 
Hemi, you know, Hemi's or diesel engines. These are carbureted uh, trucks that were probably produced prior to 1941, when you know most civilian truck production ceased uh, it to to provide for the war effort. So, you know, you're talking about a carbureted engine. One of the problems with carbureted engines is that they they flood, which for those of you who are not familiar with cars is something basically where you have too rich of a mixture in the carburetor for ignition to occur. And now that sounds re kind of nonsensical, but you can actually have too much gasoline to make a um, environment burn. Um, it's gasoline and other flammable liquids burn largely by their vapors, and their vapors have to be in a certain... Uh, concentration range to burn and I don't know those off the top of my head I, I could look them up for anybody who's interested and post them in the comments uh, just let me know but you know it's very easy even in normal circumstances with these older trucks to flood the engine and even um, the solder's uh, um, son-in-law in an interview in 2013 uh, with the Charleston Gazette Mail uh, stated that he believed that's what happened now the, I guess you could call them conspiracy theorists in this case, uh, including quite a few bloggers and podcasters, have tried to point out that there was a stolen um, block and tackle and that this might have been used to disable the vehicles. And, okay, <laughs> you can tell these people have never tried to move an engine, which is the only thing you'd be using a block and tackle for in a vehicle. Moving an engine out of a vehicle is not a quiet process. It is not a simple or quick process, and there are a ton of easier ways to disable an engine. I mean, you know, watch an episode of Scooby-Doo. You pull the distributor cap, or you dis disconnect the distributor cap from the spark plugs, or you just remove spark plugs, or you just whatever. There's tons of other ways of doing this. So... <laughs> That's, that's kind of this where one of these stories gets kind of um, almost ridiculous. The idea that there's, you know, there's this conspiracy of people who have somehow managed to remove the engines of these vehicles and, you know, they didn't work, so, or whatever. I'm not sure how the heck they, that even seems plausible, but let's just ignore it. It's just ridiculous there was no evidence anybody tampered with these vehicles none it was probably either if it was a gasoline engine it was probably due to a flooded uh, carburetor or if these were diesel engines which i don't know which one they were um, no one ever bothers to mention that or report it and it's not recorded in any of the documents i've seen um if it was a diesel engine it may simply have been too cold um Anybody who has ever uh, lived in a cold environment has probably been subjected to school delays due to school buses not starting in the morning when it's cold out. And that may be very well what happened. You have a cold-soaked diesel engine, and it just doesn't start until temperature warms up. Or you put it in a garage, and you have a certain degree there. And then regarding the efforts of Mr. Um, Sodder and his sons to save their siblings or children, uh, as the case may be, uh, from the fire, there's something else that gets kind of made into a point that is, if you stop and think about it, sounds absolutely just, okay, why is that mentioned? 
and that is there was a barrel of water that was kept next to the house or near the house and everybody's like well it could have been used to fight the fire okay but it was frozen this is December in basically the central part of the east coast um it would be more unusual if the water was not frozen um and even by the time you have a house fire that has spread enough that it's going like the family describes it going at this point a barrel of water is going to do exactly zero even with modern aggressive firefighting techniques and using construct and the methods of construction used today that weren't used in the in the time this house was built um, to slow the spread of flames, uh, fire codes, um, certain types of wall design, etc. Um, it can take hundreds, if not thousands, of gallons of water to put out a, a structure fire. And so the idea that this, you know, probably 50 or 60 or 100 gallon barrel of water would have made you know a lick of difference other than maybe providing the family with the solace of saying they had done everything they could um, is that it actually would have done anything is ridiculous and um, now I want to make a point here um, none of this not an iota of this about the attempts at rescue or firefighting by the family should be taken as any condemnation or disrespect towards uh, George Sauter or his sons. Um, they did the best they could under difficult and trying circumstances. I can't even begin to imagine what it must have been like for them. Um, so if anybody thinks this was intended to be rude or condescending or disrespectful, uh, you're wrong. You're, you're just flat out wrong. Yeah, so, then you get into this whole other kind of... This is where the conspiracy theories really start to take off. Um, and there's this... And that is regarding the fire department in this town. One of the things you have to remember in small-town America, even to this day, is that you don't have firefighters usually sitting at the station 24-7, especially on holidays. Uh, so you are looking at people who are probably, you know, at home. Um, people may have been out of town, uh, way visiting relatives. The war effort had taken on many of the young men who would have been the volunteers in this community and left them with, uh, you know, the men who were either medically unfit, too old, or uh, injured to serve in uh, the military. So you have an, underpower, an undermanned fire department. You don't have the modern communications equipment, like radios. Um, it isn't attention, you know, such and such fire department respond to such and such address for a structure fire reports of children trapped inside. Time out, you know, 0135, you know. What it's going to be, and this is how it worked, is the fire, you know, the, the phone was not working in the house, and everybody makes that into another 
Well, oh, somebody cut the phone lines. Okay, the fire started next to the phone. The fire started next to the fuse boxes. Um, that doesn't mean anything. I mean, it. You know, the fact the phone wasn't working is not shocking. I mean, it. It. It's to be expected. Uh, my parents' garage when I was a teenager burned, and there was a phone extension out in the garage. And uh, when the phone burned, it basically set our phone circuits up to be like they were all one of like it was in use so you couldn't make a call out even if you grabbed one of the other handsets so you know there's nothing there's nothing suspicious there that's that's just a another one of these red herrings that everybody puts out to try to make this sound like some sort of a big to do there's no there's nothing sinister or suspicious in that at all so they had to go and get help basically go get someone else to call and a, by a passing driver apparently had done this as well and they tried calling and there was an issue with the um operator who this is still in the days when there was you know, had you know you know you know you know such and such 2240 you know uh crawford 5877 please you know that sort of thing uh, which by the way is actually my grandparents old number from the days in they when they was there was still phone exchange back home and uh you know they tried to so they family ran and found somebody and called the fire department and then there was this what's called a phone tree system which is basically a bunch of people one calling the next and then the call them calling the next and so on and so forth until you get everybody it's a time-consuming process it's still used in disaster responses and military duty callbacks in the case of an emergency in a lot of cases um even today it's a fallback measure um, this town didn't have uh, what some fire departments still have as a backup um, to radio dispatch which is a fire siren which is a station siren that sounds like a tornado siren when it goes off you know you respond to the station um, the fire station in my parents hometown still has this and still uses it still tests it uh, once a week um, so you know they didn't have this And everybody's like, oh, well, the children died. They stood back, stood off so that, you know, the children would die. And it's like, okay. There are three very, very important things to remember in all of this. The first of all is no firefighter. I don't care how much you dislike a, par a set of parent or a set of parents. It's going to stand around and let a kid die unnecessarily. Right now, full stop. Not happening. Ever. Um, you know, the other point that almost no one ever mentions is that one of the volunteer firefighters in this town, one of the ones who responded to this call, was Jenny Sauter's brother. That's right. There was a family member on this department. And for those of you who are not aware, there's if you ever remember the coverage from um, the 9-11 attacks and the aftermath, the search for the, the missing, you may have recalled hearing the term brother or sister firefighters um, or, you know, something along those lines, brother and sister police officers. Emergency services as a family. The price of admission to that family is loyalty to your 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 fellows, even if you don't know them, even if you don't like them. 
even if you're not on the same department. You're willing to lay down your life for them. And if you're not, you're shown the door very quickly. Along with that is, is that, you know, you don't do anything to disrespect or harm your brothers and sisters. There's a family member of the family in this case on the department. That makes it even more ridiculously unlikely, like to the point of just absurdity, that this fire department got together as some sort of cobble and said, we're not going to respond to this fire for a long time and let it burn and blah, blah, blah. So the third point, the final point of all of this, that makes this whole argument of, oh, the fire department conspired to let the kids die. Okay, this is hindsight bias working. Modern firefighting, what people and podcasters and bloggers and our armchair detectives have are operating off of is a modern approach to firefighting. You know, advanced fibers, um, materials, coats, SCBAs, thermal imagers, things we can use, uh, portable hose lines to go in and get people out of a burning building and carry that fire to, to you know, that fight to the seat of the fire and put it out. None of that, other than maybe the, the being able to fight, you know, do some aggressive use of hoses, um, existed in 1945, uh, especially in a rural West Virginia town. You know, there was no SCBA equipment, which is the self-contained breathing apparatus. It's basically a uh, air pack and a mask that fits on and allows you to breathe inside of a fire. Uh, there were no protective garments like we have today. I mean, most firefighters at the time either wore a rubberized cotton or leather coat, um, which was more designed to, to protect you from falling embers and hot water than the, you know, the heat of a fire, which, you know, you're talking, you know, somewhere between 900 and 1500 degrees, depending on what's burning precisely and the amount of oxygen it has. Um, fire physics is a very complex subject and I can do an entire presentation on just on that. Um, so no SCBA, minimal protective equipment means that even if these firefighters had arrived three or four minutes after the call, five, six minutes after the call, no one's going in that building. There's no getting those kids out. And that's assuming that they were even alive at that point. As chilling a thought as that is, um, you know, it largely points out that, you know, there's no good indication of anything untoward here, you know. If they wanted to let these kids, if, they did, if, if for some reason this entire department decided to just snap and take out a family in this town, a respected family in this town, mind you, um, you know, they could have gone on scene, sat there, and just done their job, and nothing would have changed, you know. But that's not what happened the fire department took several hours to respond which i mean is probably not the most you know it's not a desirable thing obviously and i'm not trying to defend it but i'm trying to explain it like i said christmas eve how many of you are sitting around home how many of you travel to see your loved ones you know 
you know, your grandmother lives in the next town over. Well, you may be 20, 30 minutes away. You're not at the your, your phone that they call for a call for a fire department. So, you know, the fire chief, everybody says, oh, well, you know, he couldn't drive the truck. What the hell is that all about? Okay, well, remember, this is 1945. War's going on. Almost every fit man has been called up for military service. There may, they may, there may very well have been something mundanely able to explain that. And I've not ever found anything to do it, but you know, he may have had a medical problem. He may have had bad vision. You know, there's, you know, the answers are generally in cases like this are not exciting. They're not, you know, headline grabbing. They're mundane. So, you know, this fire burned for about 45 minutes before the house collapsed, which honestly, that's actually pretty good. I mean, that's, that argues that whoever built this house did a pretty decent job of construction. I mean, it stood up for quite a while on a, with a raging fire going through it. Um, so, this is where you have the fire still going the family points out something that they try to make into something that is more than it probably is um the christmas lights were reported to be be working for quite some time after the fire into the fire um so i should point out something about how we approach or how i should say how firefighters approach i'm not working as a firefighter anymore um i just went through the training uh, years and years and years ago uh, back in nine, 98 99 time frame um they the, the the way that that's handled is that power is pulled from the fire almost immediately uh, from a from a fire uh, impinged structure such as a house or warehouse or anything like that almost immediately because even if the wires are burned, you can still get electrocuted. You can still have ele active electricity. If you have an electrical fire, you want to pull off, you want to shut off what's ignited this fire. Um, you don't want to be spraying water around a, a live wire. You don't want to get electrocuted. So why were the lights burning? Probably because the fuse, the circuit that had provided power to them had not, had simply not been damaged. Um, or it had been damaged in such a way that it continued to function. Um, it's not anything untoward. I've seen a burning building that had um, the uh, interior lights stay on until the power was pulled by the fire department upon arrival. Um, it's not anything. There's, it's another one of those grasping at straws trying to create a narrative that fits with an idea. So... Regarding the electrical system, um, George had been, by his own statements, told by a visitor that the recent rewiring he had had done um, was done in a rather shoddy way, um, and that the fuse boxes, were, which is where the fire started, were going to, quote, cause a fire someday, end quote. Um, everybody says, well, you know, it had just been redone. Okay, that doesn't mean anything. You know, new wiring is just can be just as prone to a problem if it's not done correctly or something's oversight. Some sort of oversight happens as, you know, old wiring. 
and it had been inspected. Uh, to my knowledge, no one in 1945 came in and inspected independently the wiring done by someone else. Uh, in fact, I've not been able to find any uh, answers as to who did the wiring. I mean, for all we know, George did it. You know, he was a he seemed to be a very talented fellow and good with his hands. He may have wired this himself. Um, I don't know. That po provides one possible uh, this 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 story, this statement by George provides one possible reason for why the story of the kidnapping uh, was put forth. It may simply have been a way to assuage guilt for failing to act uh, when he was told, hey, this might cause a problem. You probably should get it looked at. And then it does cause a problem, and it costs him his children um, and his home and his belongings and a lot of other things along with that. Um, you know, it simply may have been a way of trying to pass the buck, so to speak. So that brings us to what are the possible theories here? Um, or I shouldn't say theories. It's, they're hypotheses. Um, there's a difference between the two. A theory is something that is backed up by credible evidence that you could basically take to an independent party and show them and go, yeah, that, 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 that fits. A hypothesis is simply a, a potential explanation. It doesn't have to be plausible. Um, people confound these two uh, words together and make them into, like, equals, and they're not. So you basically have... A few different options, and several of them are just ludicrous and can be just dismissed, just more or less, with cursory review. Um, the first is is the probably the least flattering, and I'm just putting this out there because it's an it, it, it it's a hypothesis, and in due diligence you have to put it out there, you have to clear it, and you have to move on as an investigator. That's just how this works, and that's that George or Jenny or both had done something to the children, had murdered the children. And we're trying to cover the tracks. Okay. Why only murder some of the kids? Uh, why would you keep calling attention to the case and trying to get the best forensic investigators in the U.S., the FBI, involved if you did something like that? Yeah. Uh, argument is just, just so ridiculous it's not even worth mentioning. Um the other the next one is the kidnapping theory the disappearance theory which is a favorite of bloggers and podcasters because it's ooh you know somebody grabbed these kids you know okay let's suppose for a second here that you stop and think about what you got going on you got somebody sneaking into the house that these kids do not know in the middle of the night, with a mother who can wake up to the sound of something sliding across the roof. Um, the parents listening to this are probably starting to laugh because they're going, yeah, trying to get two or three kids organized is uh, just an absolute nightmare. Um, trying to get five kids in the middle of the night, quietly out of a house without the parents or the elder siblings hearing just is so ridiculously unlikely that it's like okay yeah you know, whatever um the 
the other one is that you have children who are old enough and even if the kids had survived all of them would have eventually been old enough to have come forward said hey you know i'm so and so i'm you know whichever sought or child uh, and return to their families that never happened uh, aside from some supposed picture that bears a bears a vague resemblance to one of the children and that's just it's wishful thinking on the part of the family it there's no forensic evidence no one's ever bothered to try to match this kid this picture forensically to um the child it's supposed to be so you have to kind of just look at it and go yeah okay um i mean it's possible but it is far down the list of options i mean it's it's almost as ludicrous as saying the parents had something to do with this and it's yeah it, it just doesn't make any sense the other one is that the kids were murdered um for some reason but the parents and the rest of the siblings were left alive before they set this house on fire okay why why would you do that um we'll get into that in a little bit um go over it here in a little bit it's it's convoluted there's a lot of theories as to why this happened and uh there there are quite a few um major gaps in any such scenario uh, to the point that it's not even a theory it's a hypothesis still uh, the final you know significant uh hypothesis the the, the and this is a this one border is is describable as a theory because there's actually evidence to back it up um is the kids actually died in a fire and the parents just for whatever reason couldn't accept it and you know that sounds ridiculous but it's not anything unusual uh, it's not unheard of i'm actually dealing with a case right now um as a uh just in the in in the community um that this uh, family is denying the accidental death of their son which is you know there's straightforward forensic evidence that explains what happened and they just don't want to accept it because it's it's not a very flattering finding um but they're trying to make it into something that it's it's not there and it's sad it happens quite often you see it where families for the first few days weeks months even sometimes years um accept the evidence and look at the evidence and go okay yeah that's what happened um and then for some reason you know survivor's guilt uh avoidance of you know assumption of negligence um some other form of culpability um or just denying that you know in the case of you know self-inflicted injuries or overdoses uh that the person didn't commit suicide um due to the stigma attached to that um you know these people will jump through hoops that and will sometimes even invent incidents and uh, quote-unquote facts there's air quotes there around the word facts because they're not um to turn a straightforward you know forensically sound ruling of 
suicide or accident into some sort of a homicide or an undetermined death or whatever. You look at, like, classic example of this, the Kurt Cobain suicide. That is a suicide. There's no forensic evidence whatsoever that anybody else was involved in that. I don't know of a competent medical legal agency out there that would rule that as anything other than a suicide. Look at the grand conspiracies involving uh, Martin Luther King's assassination, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, etc., uh, etc., et ad nauseum. You basically have these the, – people will construct these grand conspiracies that just snowball to the point where you have a, a cast of thousands. If you ever tried to organize a surprise party for someone and had you know 10 or 15 people involved – and you know how hard it is to keep the person from finding out what's going to happen? It's a pain in the butt. You know, the old expression that, you know, a secret can be kept by two people so long as one of them is dead? You know, that's that's basically this here. Once you get to a point where you have so many people involved in multiple levels, you basically are arguing that the conspiracy is less and less likely and not more and more likely. Because eventually somebody's going to rat. Somebody's going to crack or some sort of evidence is going to come out to tie one of those people to someone else who ties to someone else who ties to someone else. And you can actually prove it in court. None of the cases I mentioned have any of that. And this doesn't either. And that's where a lot of the talk that came out about this case and that's made out by podcasters, by bloggers, by others uh, – to be significant really just seems to not um, pan out um, like there's this story that goes along in this case um, that someone was um, some insurance salesman came by and started to threaten uh, George Sauter for his anti-Mussolini leanings. Um, and, you know, your family's going to die, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Well, here's the thing. If you are going to say somebody who did, did, did something like that, and you're going to make a public media campaign, and you can prove they said this and are willing to testify in court they said this. Aren't you going to name that person and say, you know, so-and-so threatened my family? Um, to my knowledge, they never named this person, which to me either argues that the person you know, never existed, which is unlikely, um, or that – Pointing that person's name out in public um, would have opened them up to uh, slander or libel charges um, or, or lawsuit liability, uh, civil charge or civil case. Um, so this never came out in public um, until after the coroner's inquest was held uh, following the deaths. And a coroner's inquest is kind of like a grand jury. 
uh, to ter determine cause and manner of death. This is it's it's still widely used in um, the Commonwealth countries like the UK. Um, Australia still uses it. Um, you very rarely see coroner's inquests here in the U.S. anymore. Um, they may actually have some uh, applicability in really high-profile cases because it puts the evidence out there and gives um, maybe lends some credence to cases where there's a suspect ruling or a very high-profile person. Um, but suddenly, this you know mysterious, threatening person is one of the jurors in the, you know, here, it's like, okay, and why wasn't this brought up at the inquest? By the way, inquest records are kept as, as literally verbatim transcripts in almost all cases. I've got uh, a copy of a couple from the 1940s, one was in 1946, actually, um, where you can literally read them, read the off-cuff comments made by um, witnesses that have nothing to do with question asking and it's like uh, one of them actually contains references to when people coughed during their testimony so it uh you know someone standing up and going that's a bitch uh threaten my family you know wouldn't you stand up and do that you know in open forum didn't happen there's no mention of this in anywhere in any of the records or any of the versions of this this tale that's told um, this story came out after a private investigator named C.C. Tinsley got involved, and there's varying versions of his involvement. There's a story that he chased the lead of one of the children being an adult out to Kentucky and vanished himself. Well, you know, I mean, no offense, these, this, you know, uh, I've never been able to track down an independent source that says that. It's always secondhand knowledge, um, but... You know, it, it likely is simply a fact that the family was trying to prove something that they disagreed with, and so they're trying to discredit the um, inquest. Uh, they can't attack the evidence, such as it is, uh, so they're going to basically resort to an ad hominem attack against one of the jurors and say, well, they did this, they did that. Okay. So about this Mussolini theory uh, or anti-Mussolini theory, um, yeah, it, you know, no, um, there's this idea that somehow the Italian immigrants in this town decided that they didn't like George Sauter sh shooting his mouth off about how bad Mussolini was. Okay, first of all, um, by this point in time, Mussolini was already dead, uh, had been strung up by his ankles and basically used as a human pinata in, I believe it was Milan, outside of a gas station along with, uh, his, uh, uh, girlfriend uh, some rather graphic videos available of that um, so you know it's not like you know they're still insulting the guy who's in power they're insulting the guy who's Hitler's best friend who's now dead so a couple things there's this idea that the mafia went after the family uh, because of George's views um, just a little bit of a primer on how the interaction between the Mussolini regime and the Mafia worked. Basically, the Mafia hated Mussolini's guts. Uh, they did everything short of actually try to kill him, which they may well have done, tried at, at various points. Uh, because of his, his, you know, he's a totalitarian dictator. Um, he didn't want 
the La Cosa Nostra, the, the, the Italian mafia, interfering um, with his attempt at power because the Italian mafia ran a large part of the country, basically. Um, you know, if you're, if you're a narcissistic dictator, you don't want a bunch of other people controlling your territory. So he did his level best to crush the mafia. And, you know, in the U.S., the American branch of the mafia was working with the Allies to get rid of Mussolini. Um, you can look up the pardon or abrogation of uh, Lucky Luciano's sentence for, you know, multiple felonies uh, during World War II in exchange for his help securing the New York docks and providing information that helped with the invasion of Sicily. Johnny Torrio, who is uh, one of the Chicago outfit uh, with um, Capone, he had um, he had moved back to Italy in like I think it was 1924-25, and the Mussolini regime tried to kill him, so he returned to the U.S. in 1928. Um, so anyone who thinks that the mafia was pissed off because George Sauter shot his mouth off about Mussolini uh, doesn't understand the uh, just fervent hatred that the, the mafia had for him. It's, it's just ridiculous. And even more pointedly, um, you know, we like to think of the mafia as being a bunch of basically terrorists, which, I mean, to a certain extent, the, there, there are branches of the Italian mafia that aren't the nicest guys on the planet let's leave it at that um you wouldn't want to cross them in any way shape form or fashion um but there's a general rule in almost every and this works for almost every organized crime outfit there you don't target certain people you don't go after cops you don't go after prosecutors you don't go after children you don't go after wives why you kill a ch you kill you kill another scumbag. The, the, the investigation may be aggressive, but it's not going to be you know run to the ground you know ever you know to, as aggressively as if you murder a child or in this case five of them. You don't want to attract attention. I mean, if you ever you know uh, the mobster Dutch Schultz was basically taken and killed by his own people because he was trying to kill Thomas Dewey, who was the prosecutor who put Lucky Luciano away. Um, you know, they're, we're not above whacking their own people to stop them from whacking people who would have gotten the cops on their asses. So, you know, um, it's it's just you know, not there. There's, there's nothing to that. Um, so, this case gets ruled as a suicide or a, uh, as an electrical fire uh, secondary to shoddy wiring or fuse box failure and so you then have these oddball reports that come up of children being seen the next morning after the fire and this and it's you know i have two words for you elvis sightings it's 
every one of these cases, if any high-profile case is going to get just tons of junk um, call-ins. Now, a lot of these are done with the best of intentions. Some of them are done just to be difficult or to cause trouble or to uh, screw with the police or screw with the family. Um, some of them are genuinely, you know, I thought this person was so-and-so. I mean, yeah, okay. There's no evidence that the kids made it out of the house. There's no, it's implausible that someone removed these children from the house without anybody noticing. And then there comes the coup de grace to the whole kidnapping theory. And it comes from one of the Sodder family them, himself, or themselves. The, one of the elder boys, one of the survivors, John, in his first statement to the police, stated that he had gone into his in upstairs and had attempted to wake his siblings. He stated that he had seen them. He stated that he yelled at them. So unless you have a family member who is completely blowing smoke out his butt in a situation like this, which is just, uh, I don't know how, why. Um, the kids were in the building when the fire happened. And that pretty much stops that, stops the kidnapping theory cold. He changed his story a little bit, saying he only yelled up the stairs, but that was during an interview that took place after he spoke with his father. Um, may have been, depending on which source you go by, may have been done during an interview where his father was present. Um, so, you know, there's that. John was the only one of the siblings who never really got fully into the whole public outcry that his siblings had been kidnapped. Almost every report states that he more or less try to convince his family to let it go, drop the subject, and just kind of try to get on with their lives as best they could. Um, that, to me, sounds a lot like somebody who is trying to deal with their guilt and protect themselves emotionally. Um, it's the stress response of guilt, of in the moral sense of the term, not the legal. Um, you know, and so there's this idea that, okay, kids are in the house, well, someone set the house on fire. Okay. If someone threw an incident and everybody likes to say, well, you know, they heard this thing hit the roof. What does it mean? It doesn't mean anything. Flat out doesn't mean anything. What it means is that whoever thinks this uh, was responsible for starting the fire doesn't understand how an incendiary device works. First of all, if you throw an incendiary device at a house and it takes 30 minutes to an hour, to catch fire or set the house on fire you really needed to pick a better incendiary device um so if the incendiary device was thrown onto the roof why did the family state one of the most vocal proponents that these children were kidnapped or there was some sort of foul play that the fire started in the, in the interior of the house on the first floor.
it's hindsight. It's trying to make something fit when it doesn't. Now, supposedly when the snow melted, there was this small greenish hard rubber-like object that was found by one of the solders. Um, and it's been variously described as a hand, as pieces of a hand grenade or a quote-unquote pineapple bomb um, or some sort of military incendiary device. Okay, first of all, uh, looking around in every resource I can find and using what I know about military weaponry from World War II, I used to do reenacting, um, there's not anything that fits that. Um, you know, everybody says, oh, it was a, na you know, Sauter or Mr. Sauter tried to claim it was a napalm bomb. Well, for one, napalm at that time was not a handheld throwing device. It was dropped from aircraft or it was sprayed out of tanks, as in, like, the armored vehicles. Um, you had handheld incendiary devices, but they were made out of metal. Um, thermite, which is made out of chemical compounds I'm not going to name here because, you know, I don't want anybody using them, um, tried to, you know, there's nothing that I'm aware of that fits with being able to be thrown by a single person um, in any of the military arsenals um, during World War II. More than likely, what they found was just some sort of burned plastic debris. There's plenty of stuff that comes out looking weird after it's been exposed to a house fire and a collapsing building. So, now that that's all dismantled and debunked, there's the question of, okay, so, you know, why didn't the children try to escape? Well, this is a misunderstanding. Children don't react rea rationally to, to house fires. It's a well-known phenomenon. You can look at any firefighting textbook, and they, one of the first things they're going to tell you about children is they do weird crap. They hide in fires. They'll go into bathrooms and shut the door. They'll go into closets and shut the door. They'll climb under their beds. They'll climb into toy chests. They'll climb into uh, cabinets. Um, we actually are taught to sweep underneath um, beds with the, with the handle of our axe to see if there's anything or anyone under there. Um, you kind of do a, f a sweeping motion with your arm as you're crawling along in the, in the building because you can't see, usually. Um, so you have this... There. There's that. The smoke may have killed these kids before they ever woke up. I mean, this is why I got preachy about smoke alarms. The kids were... were yeah, probably, and I'm going to put a reasonable degree of forensic certainty on this, um, that they were dead very possibly before and very likely be a very or very soon after uh, the survivors became aware of the fire. Um, it's a little difficult to reconcile this with John saying that he entered the room, but, you know, it may have woken the kids up and then they were overcome by fire that, you know, or smoke that rapidly spread. Um, there's, um, you know, that's, that's there. And so you get into this whole issue of people saying, well, there were no bones found, which is not in, it's not as straightforward as it sounds for one. Um, people want to think that, you know, you walk around a burned building and you're going to easily spot a, a corpse. I, I can tell you from you know, experience, it's not that easy. And you actually see people, uh, if you see photographs of a fire, it's very easy to overlook, especially fragmented remains. And remember, these are remains that had been exposed to 
of an intense fire in a structure for 45 minutes. The building collapsed and then burned for another yeah, f six, five, six, seven hours before it was finally put out and a search was conducted. Um, mo in modern cases, it's basically everything is sifted and it can take days, if not a week or more, to go through a structure fire and, and recover every bit of a victim. It's very difficult to differentiate between burned bone in a lot of cases and the surrounding debris unless you really know what you're looking at and you're taking your time. Um, I mean, one of the techniques that's used is actually to x-ray, you know, just basically bring in a five-gallon bucket, spread it out, and take x-rays of it and look for teeth and look for bone fragments because they, are, they have a different uh, reaction to the x-rays than burned wood does and you can find bullets like this too if you think there's foul play involved you can find a knife or stuff like that anything metallic you also can use it to identify find identifying um items that may help you identify or determine who a person was um rings jewelry uh, dental appliances so on and so forth and i mean Fire scene recovery is so complex, there's basically a textbook on the subject uh, written by Steve Sims, uh, Dennis Dirk, Matt, and like three or four other people. It's available from the Department of Justice as a PDF if you want to read it. Um, it's a really, actually it's a really interesting read. It discusses a lot of the difficulties that are involved. And it shows some images of what burn, burned remains uh, can look like, I believe. If I, that's the, I believe it's that episode, or the, uh, that um, edition. There's another uh, one put out by uh, one of the universities. I don't remember which one off the top of my head. That actually has images that they used a they used a pig carcass, which is the usual stand-in for human remains, uh, to demonstrate what exactly you would be looking for. Um, so, you know, they're like, oh, well, the search was made, no thing was found. Okay, this search lasted less than two hours. It was not conducted by forensic scientists. It was not conducted by uh, medical examiners. It was conducted by the local volunteer fire department. Um, it was conducted by people who didn't really know what they were looking for. Um, two hours is laughably bad and laughably short. It is something that you would... We spend more time on that than that on a um, mo an apparent natural death someone you know grandma dies in bed at home and the doctor is not available to sign a death certificate we spend more time digging around the house and looking for signs of foul play than they did digging around a collapsed building looking for the remains of five children so you know you have and i mean no disrespect to my brother and sister firefighters from uh, uh, that statement it's not anything against them you know, it's just not our it's not really our job um, it's not what we're trained to do this is something that should have been handled by you know investigators um, which I mean that really didn't exist at that time so you know we live and we learn um, so one of the things and I want to bring this up for two reasons um, uh, BuzzFeed Unsolved covered this case um, in one of their podcasts and there's two things about this that are just that need to be taken out sh uh, have a have a bright you know light that's powerful enough to kill a vampire shined at the uh, at it and everybody basically just you know this is wrong the first 
is not actually related to the the matters of the case. It is simply a matter of decorum. This is a case that involves the death of five children. And I know it's BuzzFeed, but there's, there's a line. That line starts the moment a child dies. You don't have two bros sitting around joking and laughing about um, the death of children. It's just beyond the pale. The second point is they make a big deal out of there was no smell of burned flesh. Okay. Well, I can tell you this right now. Even if you've got a dead body right there, unless you get down and stick your nose in it, you're not going to smell it. There's too much stuff around there, around a burned house, that smells really strongly. Um, a good example, if a little disturbing, would be if you're standing around a large campfire and the person on the other side of the fire is cooking a hot dog. Do you smell wood smoke or do you smell the hot dog? 99 times out of 100, you're going to smell the smoke and you're going to smell the wood and you're going to smell everything else but that hot dog. The same is true with the burned body. You don't go by smell unless you're using a canine unit. Um, even with a clean burning like a cremation, there's no there's no real smell. I mean, at least not with you know normal sized individuals. With really 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 morbidly obese folks, you can get a strong uh, odor from the burning fat, but it doesn't smell like burning flesh. Um, and most people wouldn't recognize it if they smelled it. Um, so yeah, there's very little that the whole lack of a smell of burning flesh doesn't really mean anything. Okay, so even with an in intact set of remains, you know, a, a, you know, a body that wasn't subjected to a house falling on it, it's it's very difficult to walk around and just go. There's there's the skull, there's the arms, there's the legs. At times, um, you know, there have been cases where people have literally stepped on a body in a fire because of the fact they couldn't see it until they realized it was there. Um, also, um, you know, it's worth pointing out that there are cases in the liter in the scientific literature of a straightforward structure fire, wood-fed fire, you know, contents fire, produce without any use of accelerants, you know, no gasoline, no kerosene, no whatever, uh, producing you know, near total cremation. Um, if you want a good read of how this works and exactly what, um, uh, you know, fire will do to a human skeleton, a human body, um, I strongly suggest uh, Christopher Schmitz and uh, Steve Sims's book, uh, The Analysis of Burned Human Remains. It's a great read if you're into this stuff, if you're interested in this stuff. There are some really gory pictures in it, but then again, it's a forensics textbook, and if you're not interested in gore you're probably not all actually all that interested in forensics because you know the two go hand in hand the you know the thing is is that you know the behavior of human bone when exposed to fire is not straightforward it's i mean even today we don't fully really truly and completely understand it it's there's so many factors between you know the tissue protecting it versus the tissue, you know, providing a fuel source versus, 
you know the hydration of the bone the heat of the temper the heat of the fire the you know there's just a ton of factors that go into this the length of exposure um so what you have here is the whole there oh there's no remains found there was no there no bodies found you know okay well you've got a quick hasty search conducted by people who have you know no anthropological or archaeological or forensic training really um but here's the thing the initial reports and statements from people who were on the scene reported in the newspaper immediately after the fire there were reports of at least one body being found and organs being found and some people have tried to make this whole thing about oh well why would you find organs but not find skeletons okay well that's that's pretty simple to actually explain if you have a dark gray and black and white background like the debris pile from a structure fire and you have someone that likely died from carbon monoxide poisoning one of the you know anybody who's taken a health class or a first aid class or a safety class is taught you know the effects of carbon monoxide on the blood it produces a cherry pink discoloration of the skin and it does the same thing to internal organs as well i mean heat exposure alone can also do this so you get heat artifact it can produce a cherry pink uh presentation even without the presence of carboxy a significant amount of carboxyhemoglobin which is what's formed when uh, carbon monoxide uh, molecules bond to uh, hemoglobin, which is the uh, what normally carries oxygen in the blood and what gives uh, blood its red color. So you have a bright reddish pink organ that stands out against a dark background. So you're going to notice that. You're not going to notice the surrounding bone fragments that are probably reduced to a you know a white or gray or brownish color that looks a lot like burned wood to an untrained observer so you know you're not you know there there's there was human remains found this was stated by Ginny Sauter's brother this was verified by a local parish priest um, this was reported in the newspapers at the time and it was testified to by you know witnesses at the inquest so You know this whole the family trying to settle the issue decided several years later after you know you know after all this hubbub that they were going to reopen the site of the fire which because it happened at christmas time there was a delay in the investigation by the state fire marshal's office and george Sauter rather impulsively decided to that no one was coming after a couple days and he took a he took his trucks which were now running apparently and got loads of dirt and brought them to the site and used a bulldozer to pack the earth into and over the, this house with the explicit stated purpose of creating a memorial and burial place for his children so at this point in time by all indications it seems that he believed his children were in there and that he had been you know there was no none of this grand conspiracy at that point you know being put forth so you know 
there's a question a lot of people ask is, well, why didn't the you know the fire department when they found these remains tell the loved ones? Well, it's in the newspaper, um, so it likely argues that you know there was the family was probably told, probably was actually told, or they would have learned. You know, it's a small town. You know, everybody hears about it. Um, it seems ludicrous to ex assume that this family was the only people in town who didn't know that remains were found. Um, so you have you may actually just be something along the lines and a lot of the comments that were made later um, by you know members of the fire department Jenny Sauter's brother included um, was that they were trying to spare the family uh, the, the rather grisly details and I can attest that these can get really really grisly um, so you you know there there actually may have been some sort some degree of sexist you know interplay in that uh that's you know they they wanted to spare the mother who is you know fragile and whatever you know which you know is a load of crap um for the most part and you know women are as emotionally tough as guys for the most part um, all other things being equal and so you know they wanted to spare the mother was actually a comment that i remember reading in one of the early newspaper reports on this um right after the family started crowing that this was a there was something to this case more than just a, a house fire so george go, had gone in taken a bulldozer and buried this house well okay so there's all these questions there's all this stuff and they've gone and they've supposedly written to the fbi and said you know we want you to come in and look at the case well the way this works is that the fbi can't just come in and usurp authority of a local jurisdiction unless there are certain criteria met which were not met in this case apparently and they wrote to Ed, J. Edgar Hoover who took the time to write back to them and we basically were told you know we can't do anything unless the local authorities do this and apparently the response from the authorities is the case is closed this is what happened uh, and we're supposed to believe, if you want to buy into the conspiracy theory, that a bunch of local yokel firefighters and cops told J. Edgar Hoover to basically sit on it and spin. Anybody who knows anything about Hoover at all, uh, besides the cross-dressing uh, aspect, um, knows that you didn't tell J. Edgar Hoover anything um, and get very far. He pretty much did what he wanted. There's a reason why, even with the antics he pulled and the stunts he pulled, several presidents went by, and he outlasted all of them. You know, he he scared the crap out of a lot of people far more powerful than a local fire chief and a local police chief. So, you know, this idea that the FBI basically got told to get lost is 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 not true. Uh, in fact, the FBI got involved. Um, uh, either through the request of the local police just to try to settle this matter or um, maybe through the request of the state police or the governor um, who were involved in this there was actually a debate at the state house level to settle this it's like there's nothing here there's nothing going on the fbi looked into all these claims that the children were kidnapped they found absolutely nothing and i mean these are the best investigators in the country at that time and you know to a large degree still are in many ways um, there was nothing that came of it. 
So, you know, the family decides to go, go back and they're like, well, we're going to prove there's nothing in here. The kids are not in this house. So they, they hire a pathologist from up in, um, uh, crap, I think it was New York. It was New York or Boston, one of the two. And he comes down and he digs, he, him and a bunch of volunteers dig out the house, which to my knowledge and everything I can document, or I've ever, all the documents I've been able to find, uh, there was no archaeologist involved with this. There's no anthropologist and there was nobody really trained in how to excavate. Um, and it's not straightforward like you think it is. It's it's not just, you know, buckets of dirt, come out, sift it, find it, blah, blah, blah. You have to kind of very carefully dig your way through to make sure you don't lose um, associations between items that can provide links, you know, piece of debris next to that to a remain a piece of remains may indicate who that is or where they were in the house at the time of the fire or whatever bone fragments were found and a lot is made out of the um smithsonian's um assessment of these bones which before we get into this um these were lumbar vertebrae. These are the vertebrae between the bottom of the rib cage and the top of the pelvis. They're the, your lower back vertebrae. There are five of them. Um, several of these were found. Um, they were sent to the Smithsonian Institution and a gentleman by the name of Marshall Newman, um, who is a uh, anthropologist, was assigned to review them. And his report states, quote, since the transverse processes are fused the age of this individual at death should have been 16 or 17 years the report goes on to state quote the top limit of the age should be about 22 since the centra which is the body of the vertebrae the uh, the, the actual part that you know the front of the vertebrae the, the round block like portion the the transverse processes are the two these little plate-like extensions off the back that stick out to the sides um, um, okay so the top limb of the age should be about 22 since the center which normally fuse at 23 are still unfused the report allow allowed the vertebrae of a boy um, the age of the eldest victim sometimes were advanced enough to appear to be at the lower end of that range which a lot of people go oh well they said it was such and such and he was you know two years younger okay the report also states that this person was plausibly within the the range um those of you who have children those of you who have younger siblings did you all hit puberty at the same age um no not everybody does so so what happens here is a couple of things you need to keep in mind for one um newman was not a forensic anthropologist he was not a physical anthropologist so far as i can tell the only thing i've ever heard him described as in any of the papers i've been able to find about him was that he was an ethnologist which is basically somebody who studies cultures um, and he and he but he also worked with a lot of native american remains so this is prob potentially problematic for a couple of reasons. Um, despite the urge to push um, what was traditionally labeled as race out of um, uh, forensic and physical anthropology, 
one is still you still have to use um, comparison tables uh, from people of a similar background ethnically and geographically um, using data tables from say Europe to age a Native American skeleton um, or an African skeleton or using African to you to assess uh, you know an European American skeleton is um, you're going to introduce uh, potentially significant errors so you know it's a question of how accurate his assessment would have been the other question that comes into play here is you know we like to think of you know you um, you know people like to think of forensic anthropology as the science that's you know this oh it's you know it's it's the skeleton it doesn't change that much actually it does um, you can actually track um, ch changes across time I mean there's there are different even jobs can affect jobs diets um, stress disease these all can affect measurements and closures of uh, you know things we use to age a skeleton um, so it's not 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 as cut and dry as people think it is um, so you also have to keep in mind that you know in 1945 uh, what we call forensic anthropology was you know it was not even really its own field it was an infantile just very basically forming at that point in time I mean it, the standards that were used originally and until even recently used to derive age of death estimations in both black and white Americans uh, were not compiled even until several years later using um, military uh, casualties who had been uh, recovered um, during the Korean War and the immediate aftermath. Um, if you're interested in history at all, um, of fascinating characters. Um, one of the well, to me one of the most interesting is a lady named Mildred Trotter who is involved in that process if you google her name uh, last name is T-R-O-T-T-E-R -T -T -E uh, Mildred Trotter uh, she's a really interesting scientist who doesn't get nearly the attention that she deserves so you don't have a good comparison database you don't have you have a guy who's not used to working with this class of remains and you know there's no book to go to um, so far as I'm aware, there wasn't even a comprehensive textbook on juvenile osteology, which is developmental development of the human skeleton across age ranges, aside from a book that was either in Hungarian or Romanian on, on fetal remains, um, until like 50 years later when uh, Schaefer and uh, Sue Black wrote, her, um, wrote their textbook on, on developmental juvenile osteology. So... I've never been able to find a copy. I've put in a request. Um, if I find, if I get a copy, I will do another podcast to cover it. To, you know, look at these remains and say, okay, this is what was actually documented versus what's reported in all these blogs. Um, but it's so it's tough right now to draw a firm conclusion. Um, ab absolutely, and even with isolated single elements, it, you don't really want to do that. Um, ideally, you want to take multiple skeletal elements and use those to refine the age down uh your the spine the skull the pelvis the teeth the sacrum the radiuses the femora the scapulae uh the clavicles the humerus uh humeri um 
you just, all, you just can all pin, help to pin down the age more accurately. So looking at the data from Schaefer and Black's book, um, the presence of the changes that were described in what I've been able to find from uh, from the report, you know, it really basically narrows this down to someone who was past the point of puberty, but younger than their early 20s. Um, so basically someone between, say, let's say, you know, 12 or 14 and, you know, like 22, 23 years old. So the oldest child who died fits right in there at 14 years old. This is not, that's a pretty good argument. Right now, that finding would be backed up in, in a modern case, would be backed up by DNA. Um, if this sort of a mess was presented to a forensic anthropologist, they'd be like, okay, we're gonna pull, pull DNA. Well, the remains were returned to the family and no one seems to know what they did with them, um, which is odd, but whatever. Um, they're not available, so far as we're aware, um, for there to be any analysis. Um, but based on the evidence available, you have to argue that they seem to fit with a young man um, roughly fitting the description of Maurice Sauter. Um, that's the forensic conclusion that uh, an independent person standing back and looking at this data is going to probably come to. Now, something was made of this is that, you know, the bones showed no evidence of exposure to fire, quote-unquote. Um, that's a paraphrase, by the way, but, you know, exposure to fire is not as straightforward. Like I said earlier, it's a complex process. Um, you know, these bones have been in the ground for several years. They'd had a bulldozer dro driven over top of them. Um, they had a house drop on top of them. They had been smoldered. Well, the, the lumbar vertebrae are buried in some pretty thick muscles. They're covered in the front by the abdominal contents. And if the body is up against something in the, uh, on the, like the ground, um, you know, they're pretty well protected. You're not going to get, you, you probably, you may not get as much fire damage. And then you've got these, what are called taphonomic processes, which are basically the interaction between the environment and the remains um, that may have eroded obvious signs to someone who is not um, working with the, de the modern knowledge of, of what fire does and taphonomic change does to human remains. So, you know, the other point was is that, you know, the comment that was made by Newman was that he said, you know, he said there was he was puzzled by this lack of other remains in fa face of a quote wood fire of short duration well for one this was not a wood fire of short duration this was a wood fire that burned for several hours um quite vigorously and then you know burned vigorously for 45 minutes and then smoldered at probably several hundred degrees for several hours what we know about now about fire taphonomy um or fire effects on skeletal remains and then taphonomy for burials makes this seem not so suspicious this doesn't sound um you know like i said you can go and look at um schmidt and uh sims's book uh analysis of burned human remains and there are cases that discuss where you know they have a fire that lasts i think it was one of them was 20 minutes and it almost it subtotally cremated a woman who was in a trailer 
like a like a pop-up camping trailer with a bunch of um, personal belongings and they originally arrested and tried to convict the uh, boyfriend of committing murder and it turned out to not be a murder it turned out to be an accident and they demonstrated that this fire produced temperatures that were like hot enough to reduce a body to just a, a scattered rib cage and some bone and some spinal fragments if i remember correctly so it's this isn't this assessment was based off of incomplete information incorrect information and a lack of the you know the, the state of the art forensic sciences so it's it's not the case that's been discussed and um presented in a lot of these cases so it, it it brings up this ultimate question there's this over you know there's this overarching issue uh, that's so often left out of podcasts and blogs and newspaper articles about this case um in the urge to gain notoriety and credibility and just attention um a lot of people forget that behind the downloads and the and the clicks and the likes and the ratings you know um at the heart of this story there's a family that was destroyed in multiple senses of the word um they lost loved ones they lost their home they lost probably most of what they owned um they were subject to intense media scrutiny they were in in just questions that you know none of us would want to face but while it is tempting to support a family even if they disagree with the evidence um we ultimately have a duty as a forensic investigator or scientist to stand our ground so to speak and say no this is what happened that's not a sign of a cover-up um anybody who tells you otherwise is probably crazy or has has their own agenda to advance or is trying to sell you something keep a firm hand on your wallet whenever somebody tells you that there's a cover-up going on uh, is was sound advice given to me by my grandfather um you know saying no that's not what happened here's what the evidence says that's not an indication that the authorities do not care in fact it's probably an indication that the authorities do care a great deal now in this case the authorities did some pretty stupid stuff um there was the incident with the beef liver that was buried at the scene um which i think was largely done to prank the um um private investigator who by most accounts was obnoxious about his in his way of going about this case and he basically they wanted to get rid of him and you know it may have also just been a misguided attempt to give the family something that's like look there's remains let's drop this you know it's stupid it's immature it's petty and it should not have been done but that's not a sign of a cover-up it's not a sign of these people being callous i mean a little immature but you know there's nothing in that that indicates there's something untoward going on um you know standing your ground and arguing from the the, the basis of the evidence is nothing but what it is 
it's simply being firm, it's being professional, and hoping that the, these difficult to predict effects of grief um, and despair and torment um, don't leave families and friends and other parties, you know, kind of just behind in the wake, um, out there tilting at windmills. Um, that's exactly what happened here. Um, this family ended up on a decades-long, and to one extent, because there's still one of the, the youngest child who survived, I believe, is still alive, um, decades-long, just, just grotesquely, publicly, almost chaotic quest to um, for something that you, you know, once again, air quotes, justice, um, and answers that don't leave them with the devastating realization that survival from fires and other disasters is often down to just random chance, timing, coincidence, and a bit of luck. Um, that's what's at the crux of survivor's guilt. Um, to make this story into something more tragic than a house fire that killed five children is not helping the family. It is not advancing the cause of justice. It is not doing anything like that. What it is, is it's someone walking up, tearing the wound back open, and pouring salt into it for their own motivations or benefit. This is not simply a story to be told and retold around the campfire of the podcast world. This is a true case of just absolute torment and suffering and devastation. And, you know, I wish we would come together as a community, as a both the forensic sciences community and the podcast community, and say, you know, we need to, to not, you know, play this as a salacious, this and any other case, really, as a salacious attention-grabbing effort to make our a how do you put this to make it into something that gets us more clicks and likes and downloads and maybe some more donations on our patreon it doesn't and you know it, it, it we have to keep our lights on so to speak but we can do it in a respectful manner so where does this all leave us the conclusions that can be drawn based on the evidence available. The fire was electrical in origin, most likely due to shoddy workmanship or the use of substandard parts. Um, the interference with the scene um, by George Sauter um, with the use of the truckloads of soil and the bulldozer made a proper arson investigation impossible so we're left with the statements made by the family as to where the fire originated and where it was caused the original statements that were made and those point to a fire originating in and around these fuse boxes that had been installed recently and that George had been warned were possibly wired incorrectly or were made out of parts that were not up to the task. Um, 
the other one is that you know the the limitations of forensic sciences at the time um and the inability to keep a grieving father um from basically destroying uh the site is what explains the uh, lack of further substantial remains being found along with all of the complex processes involved with the burning of human remains and the processes that are involved with um, burial of human remains uh, the interaction between the bones the tissues and the soil and all the debris that's around them so many of the myths and assumptions about this case that have come up especially the blog cat blog and podcasting community are explainable as either partially or completely fabricated you know your the story of the disappearing detective the the threatening salesman um misunderstandings misinterpretations of the evidence um or the products of fishermen's tales where you know you tell the story one time and it's you know the mafia and the next time it's you know the mafia the fbi the fire department the police department uh state police the governor you know um space aliens uh the dude with the weird hair from uh ancient aliens uh ancient egyptians the the illuminati blah 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 involved in killing a bunch of innocent children because their dad is you know said some things that are inappropriate like i said it's you know this is the case where a family tragedy has been turned into something that it's not it's turned into something that is just doesn't even resemble what actually happened in many ways and that is that is the i think that's the ultimate insult here so sorry conspiracy theorists this this case is basically closed it 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 really should remain such because there's not any evidence that there was anything here other than an unfortunate accident quite simply put there's no mystery here there's no cold case there's no uh anything so all right and that concludes this discussion um it was rather lengthy but this is a very complex uh discussion with a lot of factors that needed to be covered um we are going to try to make this a weekly series we're going to cover a number of forensic science topics we're going to do both case reviews and just presentations on different aspects of forensic science especially forensic anthropology which is very poorly understood um largely due to the impacts of t popular television and um, you know movies that have portrayed it as something more than what it is and left out very important aspects of it in many cases so thank you for your time thank you for listening um if you have any questions please feel free to post them in the comment section for the uh, video or this uh, the audio here i'm going to post this up on youtube for starters it'll go later go up on the uh, website for the organization i work for which is colibri forensics that's uh it'll be www.colibri forensics k-o-l-i-b-r-i f-o-r-e-n-s-i-c-s dot o-r-g uh, colibriforensics.org um, we are a nonprofit. Um, we work doing victim recovery from mostly aircraft crashes um, we operate based on donations um, so if anybody wants to make a donation there's a donation link on our website 
Um, I will also post the link in the comments section whenever this is posted. And um, we also are going to be establishing a Patreon account. And I know I kind of railed against that a little bit, but I will point out that none of this money is going into my pocket um, by state law, by soon the IRS once uh, they get back with us. Um, it all has to go to the nonprofit and it'll all be used for actual casework and related tasks. So um, you have um, questions, comments, concerns, things about the case you think we didn't cover in sufficient detail, feel free to post them. Thank you for your time. Um, once again, I'm Steve. Uh, thank you for listening to the Skellicast.